Hey everybody, welcome back to Swedenborg and Life. This is the second installment of our 10 question show. My name is Curtis Childs and I'll be your host. The 10 question show is where we take 10 questions that you've asked that we haven't had time to answer. We've been getting this awesome stream of in-depth, thoughtful questions from you guys and we want to make sure we give them some time and attention. So we've taken some, we're researching them, we're trying to get at whatever truth you're asking about in the first place. Hope you find this helpful. And again, thanks for being there. Thanks for being interested. And we couldn't do it without you. So here's 10 of your questions answered to the best of our ability. Why can you fall asleep and have a three minute dream, but it seems like hours? Asks Nicholas. I love this question. When I was in high school, I used to have a clock radio that would be my alarm. And so it was set to a radio station where I knew a lot of the songs and the song would come on and then I would, and I would hear that we're in a verse and then I'd fall asleep and I'd have this long involved dreams, all these things going on in there. And then I'd wake up and we just hit the chorus. And that really got my attention. Like what is going on? How can that be that you can have such an altered, you know, consciousness about time. There was also a couple of uh, experiences I had, like one time I was in a motorcycle accident and everything went really slow motion and the sound cut out. I couldn't hear anything, but I could see just sparks gently. You know, it was beautiful. It was just absolutely beautiful. It's completely slow motion as the motorcycle goes down onto the highway and 60 miles an hour. And, and uh, it was very peaceful. And then the next second I snap out of it and I'm in pain and, you know, and all that. And there was another time where I went with someone into a, a room at a camp and I reached around to turn on the light switch. It was dark and I, but the, it had no plate on the switch. So my fingers went right in and the contact of the leads. So I electrocuted myself. And so I went into immediately into slow motion and my body just involuntarily contracted and I shot up into the air and it expelled in a perfect loud noise all the air out of my lungs. And I experienced this in extreme slow motion going up in the air. Oh, you know, and it's just shooting all the, and as I'm going up, I have time to think plenty, and I'm thinking, oh wait, this person that just came in with me doesn't know I've been electrocuted. So I've just probably alarmed them making this very loud noise. I'm floating up through the air as I'm thinking this. So I'm thinking at the earliest opportunity when I regain control of my body, I want to reassure them that everything's okay, you know. And so in their time, it probably felt like, ah, oh, sorry, because I, I apologize like, as soon as I landed. But, um, but for, you know, but that all was so slow. So that was, that's in a kind of a normal waking state a second before, you know, I'm not even waking up out of a dream or something like that. And I was thinking about other things like um, in the uh, Narnia stories, isn't it the case that they would go in there and they'd go in there for like months or something, then they come out and, uh, and that's the same day when they get out or um, Dickens' Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge. And so the spirits did it all in one night. You know, he's kind of amazed. So there's various things that kind of hint to us that there's different time perspectives that are possible. But what does Swedenborg say about this? Let me read from Heaven and Hell, number 168. It is known in our world that there's no time in heaven. When people die, we say that they have left temporal things and have passed beyond time meaning that they've left our world. It's known by some that times are states in origin, 
because they recognize that times are experienced in precise accord with the emotional states we're having. Times are short for us when we're engaged in pleasant and cheerful pursuits and long when we're engaged in distasteful and depressing ones and variable when we're in hope or expectation. As a result, scholars are asking what time and space are, and some of them even recognize that time is an attribute of our outer self. Very interesting quotation. And there's another one I want to read from Secrets of Heaven 4814. It is important to realize that angels' thoughts do not draw at all on time or space because they are in heaven. When they left the world behind, they also left behind any notions of time and space and adopted the idea of state, specifically of the state of goodness and truth. In fact, not even we on earth perceive time in our inner thinking, only in our outer thinking. The proof is the state we are in when our outer mind has been put to rest, that is, when we sleep, and many other experiences as well. So these two quotes are fascinating to me because what they're saying to me, Swedenborg talks about the fact that there are two parallel worlds. There's a physical universe, but there's also a spiritual universe. And so our physical world has physical time and space. It's one of its primary characteristics. The spiritual world doesn't have that same kind of fixed time and space. It has sequence. Like you still have the experience of there's now and there's a past and there's a future. And you're, you know, going through some sense of, of the, the passage of these different states. But it's not a fixed time. And so it's interesting to me that in certain states, even when we're alive in this world, we slip into that inner self or into that state where we're sort of more in the spiritual world than we are in this world. And we get that experience as you do in that dream of like, whoa, time just, just changed, you know, or people who have near-death experiences say they have all these, you know, all this happened. And then it was like 46 minutes uh, technically in this world that they were out, but they experienced all this. That's very specifically dipping into that spiritual world and experiencing that altered time, time and space. So I think these experiences are preparing us for this different reality. They, they whisper in our ear about what it's going to be like for us after we pass out of this world. Corey asks, if my soulmate moved to the next life, will we be together again when I move on to the next life? I would say yes, but let me expand on that. Uh, Swedenborg speaks in terms of married partners, and he says that most married partners do meet up with each other and spend some time together. This happens in their first state after death, which is a state um, very much in their exteriors, you know, their sort of outer self, like you were in the world. Um, and in that state, you don't always know what's going on on the inside. Like in the world, marriages are often based on very external things. Money, looks, status, geography. Um, so that sometimes covers up what's true of the inner spirit. So after that first external state, when they're living together after death, then they come into the, the state when their inner self comes more to the fore the outer appearances get put down and the inner self comes out. And then it is clear what the state of their inner union is like. 
until those externals fall away, you can't really know what the inner union is like. So at that time, if their feelings for each other are concordant and sympathetic, then they stay together. If their feelings are not concordant and sympathetic, they part and they go on to find their true match. So because I'm a word nerd, I thought it would be fun to just look at those words, concordant and sympathetic. What does that mean? Concordant comes from the Latin word concourse, which is made up Latin of the Latin roots for together and heart, the word heart, core. So if this couple after death is together in heart, then they stay together. Same with sympathetic. I just like the words. These are from the Greek roots. This is a Latin word, sympathica, but that comes from the Greek roots, which mean together, sim, and pathic, meaning feeling. So if your feelings are like together, if you're in, in concordance, if you're resonating with each other, that's what it means to be concordant and sympathetic. Your hearts and your feelings resonate with each other. So if they do resonate with each other and they feel bonded, then you stay together. If not, you move on and you find the person that you are connected to. Now, Corey used the word soulmate in her question, which implies a very deep connection. Swedenborg does say that some couples on earth do achieve this real, true spiritual union, a real joining of souls and minds, and that when that happens, it cannot be dissolved, is what he says. So I just wanted to end with this quote from Swedenborg. In that kind of union, this true connection, the two are not actually separated by the death of one. For the spirit of the deceased continues to dwell with the spirit of the one not yet deceased, and this until the death of the other, at which time they come together again and are reunited, loving each other even more tenderly than before because they are in the spiritual world. Mark asks, what's the correspondence of a desert? What does a desert mean in this language of, of symbolism? I'm going to read you a quote that I'm going to start with. This is from Swedenborg's Apocalypse Explained 280, where he says, Desert signifies where there is no good because no truth. And we're looking at it in a negative sense. I'll get to a positive sense in a minute. But there's a very cool link here. So no good because of no truth. Swedenborg says there's a correspondence between good and life or, or, or living things and truth and water. In a desert, what makes a desert a desert? It's not temperature, it's lack of water, available water, precipitation or, or water in some form that living things can use it. Because there's no water, there's not much life, right? So just like he's describing here on a spiritual level, it's where there's no good because there's no truth, right? So the desert is an image of when there's not that life-giving truth, it's very hard for things to thrive. So that in the mind, a desert would be when we don't have the accurate concepts that would allow us to really bring living things in. So that living would mean loving. So this would be bringing in concepts that are that give life to the spirit, which all have to do with love and use and helping. So those can't really thrive unless we really know what's going on, unless we accept this truth from God. So you have a desert as a symbol of the absence of that, the absence of the conditions for this stuff to thrive. Swedenborg says he sees desert-like areas in hell when he goes there. A lot of people may be thinking right now, though, I love the desert. 
You have people who feel a very strong spiritual connection to the desert, so it's important to note that everything has a positive and a negative correspondence, according to Swedenborg. And I would imagine that in a positive sense, the desert is often uh, a place that is mentioned in stories having to do with spiritual struggles or trials. The wilderness in the Old Testament is a deserty kind of place, and this is where all these struggles happen. And Swedenborg says, the only way that we grow spiritually is through these trials of the Spirit, through these struggles. So if the desert is a symbol of these spiritual struggles, it's a very, it's a very holy, important thing, because this is the only way that we reach heaven, is going through these places. And I, I think there's also something to the fact that we love deserts. I love it. I, I've only been there a few times, but it's awesome being there, as long as I have enough water and food. If I was stuck out there, I would feel very differently. So is there something to the, the awe and the power of the desert that comes when you're, you're nourished. So is it that even the bad things in life or the, the things that are harder in life are okay once you have this, this uh, partnership with God that keeps you sustained no matter what's going on in the outside world? A couple of thoughts on signification of desert. Razor asks, do our pets learn like us in the afterlife, as in their souls continue to learn like we do? First, if you haven't yet seen our show, Are There Animals in the Afterlife? In that show, we share that yes, animals have souls, yes, there are animals in the afterlife, and that there are NDE stories in which people see beloved pets, showing that there can be powerful bonds between human and animal souls. And now to answer these questions, I'll share some of what Swedenborg explains about the difference between human and animal souls. And I hope it can make space to consider how beautiful it is that there are unique and important roles for everything in creation, and that the more we understand it all, the more we can honor, love, and enjoy everything in creation. So, humans and animals are different because they play different roles in creation. Both are very important. Creation is rich and beautiful because of the great variety of created things that all work together and help each other. And the particular kind of love we can feel for animals is because they are different than humans concerning learning in the afterlife. Because of the specific and important role that they play, animals don't need to continue to learn like humans do. Animals are born with all the knowledge they need and we call that instinct. Instinct is this loving gift of specific wisdom from God to animals to let them pursue a happy and contented life. And I'm gonna read something from True Christianity in which Swedenborg explains the spiritual world flows directly through animals' brains into their physical senses and uses those senses to determine their actions. This is why their bodily senses are far more refined than human senses. This inflow from the spiritual world is what is known as instinct. It is called instinct because it comes about without the help of thought. Instinct is also supplemented by the development of habits. So humans have a role to rationally understand the bigger picture of how things work and to understand the goals of our creator so we can freely and rationally choose to participate. That's the kind of helpers we were created to be. So humans were created with minds that need to keep on learning forever to get closer and closer to understanding God and God's plans. Animals, on the other hand, have an important emotional role and contribution in the grand scheme of creation. That's the kind of helpers they were created to be and the way that they enrich and experience life. 
the different roles of animals versus humans require different kinds of minds. Part of an angel conversation that Swedenborg recorded gives a good analogy. Um, this is also in true Christianity. When first born, we humans are like ground in which no seeds have been planted, but which has the capacity to take in any and all seeds and help them grow and bear fruit. An animal is like ground that is already sown and is full of grasses and small plants. The seeds already sown in that ground fill it to capacity. This is why we humans take so many years to grow up. In our growing years, we are like ground that can be cultivated to yield crops, flowers, and trees of all kinds. Animals grow up in just a few years, and in their growing years, they cannot be cultivated beyond their innate potential. So for instance, a morning dove can't learn to make a nest like a robin. They each have total knowledge for the kind of nest that is best suited for them. And they have no desire to learn a different method. There's no need. For humans, though, it is appropriate to be able to think outside the box and do things differently than our parents or past generations. That's part of what's included in having a, a rational mind. We might project human wishes onto animals and think they would dream of learning more or becoming something different. But if you think about it and observe them, animals are very content and happy to be who they are, which is something we can learn from them. If animals are living in bad conditions, of course they would wish for better conditions, but they wouldn't wish to be a different creature or wish to do something another creature can do. If you watch animals in their ideal environment, it's, it's a delight because you can see them busily and contentedly engaging in life. I think a big part of loving and respecting animals is to allow them to be who they are. Now that's not to say that there can't be good things humans can teach animals. I, I see a lot of mutual benefit from, for instance, dogs who are taught to be good companions for humans. Animals love to know how to pursue what they want. And in the wild, what they want is food, shelter, reproduction, and whatever social interactions are suited to them. But when a dog, for instance, develops an affection for a human, I see that dog enjoying learning new behavior about how to live socially with that human to keep the bond going. It fits into that animal's world of pursuing what it wants. And an animal will be affected by and reflect its human owner's learning and development. Whether on earth or in the spiritual world, the spiritual learning and growing that humans are willing to do will positively affect the animal world, both through kinder behavior and a more heavenly attitude. So a pet in the afterlife will not need to do its own learning to improve. It already has all the knowledge it needs for itself. But it can inspire you to become a better person by stirring up your compassion and your love. And then the pet, through its relationship with you, will also benefit from the changing and growing that you are doing. Whether we realize it or not, humans are very connected with animals on an emotional level and we need each other. So we have a question from Potter. I've been reading a lot of Tillich lately and find many of his ideas resemble Swedenborg's to the letter. What other kinds of outside validations for Swedenborg's ideas and theology is out there? So thank you for this question. I find it really exciting to uh, read theologians from 
the Christian and other traditions. Um, I've had an opportunity to do so in my studies, and it's been really fun. And uh, so, yeah, I have a couple of suggestions alongside Tillich for, uh, for people to read if they're interested. And uh, with one small caveat, I haven't read widely in any of these, but what I have read really seems to indicate to me that they would be great conversation partners with the, the Swedenborgian worldview. So first, as you mentioned, Paul Tillich, he is an extremely influential Lutheran theologian who was writing in sort of the middle of the 20th century. And yeah, he's had a lot of influence over how the modern Lutheran theology has evolved over the last 50 years. And uh, I've only read a small part of his systematic theology, in particular, the part that has to do with his theology about Christ. But what I did notice there was that it was really important to him that he talk about how Christ needed to experience the conditions of human existence, that he be subject to what he called the human predicament. And, uh, and this was really important as to how Christ was able to mediate the coming of what he called the new being for people. And this as this new being comes into existence for people when they engage with Christ, this overcomes the sort of inherent estrangement that human beings have with God. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting similarity to how Swedenborg conceptualized the incarnation and, and what its point was and its effectiveness for us. And um, oh, one more point about Tillich is that um, he approaches theology from... Um, the field of existential philosophy. And so I think that really naturally puts him um, conceptually in uh, using a lot of the same conceptual vocabulary that uh, Swedenborg uses. And so a lot of his ideas, I think, will, will sound a bit similar. So my other suggestion for a theologian to look into is someone who's pretty familiar with a bunch of Swedenborgians already, and that's Richard Rohr. And uh, he is a Franciscan priest and uh, he founded the Center for Action and Contemplation in New Mexico. And uh, he, I think one of the reasons he is so attractive to, uh, to Swedenborgians is that he has a sort of mystical way of interpreting scripture. He uh, definitely emphasizes the importance of contemplation and action over verbal expressions of faith. So one example of a similarity that uh, Richard Rohr has with Swedenborg is his reframing of atonement theology, which Rohr would be quick to point out is not actually his idea, but represents uh, traditional Franciscan theology, which is this idea that, um, well, let me actually quote, it's, it's much easier to just quote you straight from something that Rohr has written. And he says, Jesus was not changing the father's mind about us. He was changing our mind about God. So we see here a similar kind of idea that there wasn't any substitutionary atonement going on. We weren't trying to appease an angry God. That there was a different kind of, of, a, of goal here about what Christ coming into the world was supposed to accomplish for people. So uh, my last suggestion for inquiry is... Not so much one specific theologian, but a whole field of study, and that's process theology. Um, process theology was born out of a field called process philosophy, which was originated by Alfred North Whitehead, a philosopher from the early 20th century. 
Probably the most well-known American process theologian, contemporary uh, theologian, would be John Cobb. And um, so for my very preliminary reading of process theology, it seems like it has a lot of similarities with Swedenborgian thought. It, uh, from its name, obviously, process is really important to, uh, to the theology, this sort of state of becoming, the way in which it imagines human beings to be in interaction and engagement with God has, uh, has a lot of similarities to the way Swedenborg talks about it. The way that process theology understands providence has some similarities. They reject the idea of God's coercive power in terms of how God acts upon people and in the world. And so there are a lot of shared ideas around free will and determination. Um, I think that process theology shares some of Swedenborg's modified panentheism, which is, you know, how it imagines God to be in and connected to the world. I think I see some similarities there. And um, in terms of specific readings, I've only read one uh process theology theologian, and that is Catherine Keller, and her book is On the Mystery. I recommend that book really highly in anything that she has written. And uh, just a quote from that to, to indicate how they sort of approach the idea of truth, she writes, but I am suggesting that it's truth, so a truth claim or a, or a, a supposition, that it's truth depends on the context of the spirit. Is it in touch with the very love it names? So we're seeing here a, a very strong similarity to the way Swedenborg understands truth and goodness or love and wisdom to be connected to each other, that something can't be true unless it is actually also good. So those are my suggestions, and um, I'm looking forward to reading some more with all of these theologians, and uh, I hope you enjoy. Antoinette asks, if everybody that loves the same thing are placed together, does that mean we will be grouped with family members since everyone in the same family are basically raised the same way? Swedenborg says that heaven is arranged by societies, families, and households. So with this, with increasing degrees of intimacy. Um, but these relationships are all based on spiritual qualities, which are matters of love and faith or what we love and how we think. And especially the service that we love to offer to the greater whole. That's what connects us to each other in the other world. You know, I was raised with this idea that there are angels and spirits always around us, our guardian angels. And I remember the moment when it dawned on me, wait, these people might be members of my extended family that I've never even met, um, but that I'm descended from. From a Swedenborgian perspective, the two are distinct yet can overlap. There are natural families and there are spiritual families. He writes that at one time early on in human history, these two levels were aligned, that people were outwardly what they really were like inwardly, spiritually. And so he writes that for, he even met some of these families and communities that existed hundreds and hundreds of years ago, where they were made up of the same people that lived together when they were in the world on the earth. He also writes of a bright future for the human race that we are gonna grow in consciousness about spiritual matters. And so people more and more will be forming natural relationships based on having a genuine spiritual affinity for each other, in which case those relationships would continue on into the spiritual world. 
So yes, it's entirely possible that you will be in a spiritual community with people who were in your extended family in this world, but the determining factor is really what you come to love in your life and what you identify with through that. And so at the same time, it's possible that you will meet people on the other side who will feel like family to you, who you've never actually met in this world. Does Swedenborg talk about eating animals? Asks Mina. Well, this is an interesting question. Swedenborg does talk about the eating of the flesh of animals, and he talks about it in a few different passages, and you get kind of a mixed impression. You know, he doesn't come down clearly on one side or another in a way. Here's one passage which has affected a lot of people. Secrets of Heaven 1002. Regarded in itself, eating meat is a profane custom since people of the very earliest times never ate the flesh of any animal or bird, but only grains, he mentions in parentheses, particularly wheat bread, fruit, these are the other things they ate, fruit, vegetables, different kinds of milk and milk products such as butter. Butchering living creatures and eating the flesh was heinous in their eyes and characteristic of wild beasts. It was only on account of the menial labor and the functions the animals performed for them that they captured any. So this suggests that they did own animals in some sense or, or use them, but it was for doing work. It was not for eating. And then Swedenborg says, this can be seen from Genesis 1, 29 and 30. But when time passed, the quote continues, and people turned as savage as wild animals, and in fact, more savage, for the first time, they started to butcher animals and eat the meat. In view of the fact that people were like this, the practice was also tolerated, as it still is today. To the extent that people follow it in good conscience, it is permissible. Because everything we consider true and consequently allowable forms our conscience. For this reason, no one these days is ever condemned for eating meat." I think that last point that he makes is that it's not a matter of our salvation or, you know, it's not something that, that sends people to hell uh, for eating meat. But still, there's very strong, you know, he kind of implies that it's sort of a savage thing. And this affected a number of people in the 19th century. You know, vegetarianism has been practiced since time immemorial. But in the 19th century, there were particularly some people who were followers of Swedenborg who took this statement as a very strong thing, like, okay, it's a sort of fallback plan to eat meat. But if we were really being pure, we wouldn't do that. And so they started vegetarian movements in the United Kingdom and in the United States. Nevertheless, at other times, Swedenborg gives you a different impression. Here's Divine Love and Wisdom, number 331. Useful functions for the support of our bodies have to do with its nourishment, clothing, shelter, recreation, and pleasure protection, and the preservation of its state. The useful things created for physical nourishment are all the members of the plant kingdom that we eat and drink, such as fruits, grapes, seeds, vegetables, and grains. Then there are all the members of the animal kingdom that we eat, such as steers, cows, calves, deer, sheep, kids, goats, lambs, and the milk they give, as well as many kinds of bird and fish. 
So that's divine love and wisdom 331. Now, there's no sense there of like, we shouldn't be doing this. It's just in a list of this is what animals are useful for, gives a list. It's interesting that even venison is on the list of, you know, these are these are animals that are useful to the human race uh, for our eating. And there's no reference to this business that it was profane earlier. As for Swedenborg's practice himself, we happen to be blessed with uh, anecdotes that survive from various different people who cared for him in one way or another. You know, he lived in their houses or, or whatever. And so there are numerous uh, anecdotes that come down to us about the type of diet that he had. And generally speaking, his was a vegetarian diet, but occasionally he would eat fish and it seems like he only ate red meat when he would go out to like a social function, a big dinner. Sometimes he ate at the royal court. And um, so there would be lavish meals and he would he would partake at that time. Uh, but at home, generally, it, the only meat that he would eat would be occasionally fish. Occasionally he would eat eels. His favorite foods were chocolate. He would eat almonds and raisins. He loved having a bread roll dipped in milk and constant coffee. He would make it himself and he would drink coffee a lot. But basically he had a pretty simple vegetarian diet for the most part, uh, not vegan, you know, a lot of milk in his diet, but, but a vegetarian diet. Nick Nick asks, what is the judgment for people who use bombs, etc., to blow up themselves and to kill others? It can be really hard for us to wrap our heads around, but Swedenborg learned that no one is ever judged by their outer actions, no matter how drastic. Here's a passage from Swedenborg's diary that explains what people are judged for. All things, to the very least, are judged by purpose. It is purpose that forms character. It is purpose according to which they are judged in the other life. Purpose is the all in all of character. Now, on earth, we can have evil motivations and do good actions, or we can have good motivations and do evil actions because of having been misguided and given false information. Outer actions have effects, it's true, but the lasting and most real effects come from motivation. Outer disorder can be much more easily healed and set right than inner disorder can. Now, on earth, we absolutely have to identify harmful behavior and put a stop to it. We as a human race can't just let people go around bombing other people. It causes terrible pain and suffering. But Swedenborg affirms the words of Jesus who said, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. Any of us can ignorantly make terrible mistakes. And there is mental and emotional violence that is actually just as damaging as physical violence. So if we want mercy for ourselves, we have to accept mercy for others. Swedenborg wrote that only the Lord knows a person's motivation. No matter how much out of harm they have done, it is their motivation that will guide them in the spiritual world. If their motivations have been self-centered, not caring about anything but personal gain and gratification, then they will continue to be guided by those motivations after death, and that leads to hell. But if they were motivated by trying to serve God or a higher cause than just themselves, no matter how misguided their information and actions have been, 
they will continue to be guided by those motivations after death. From NDE experiences, we see that people are shown their life review and will feel the effects of all their actions. So there will be a huge wake-up call to process for anyone who did violence to others. The more extensive the harmful actions, the more there will be to untangle from. That won't be easy. But once they have woken up to the error of those ways, again, the good motivation will allow them to process out of harmful habits and to be led in ways that are true and heavenly and loving towards all. Now here's an incident in which Swedenborg is trying to drive this point home to some Christian spirits that he wrote about in his diary. He wrote, all things are judged according to motives in the other life. I spoke of these matters with spirits, and in order to show them, I was given to say that if someone should convert the whole globe to Christianity with the motive of self-glory, self-love, and the like, then such a one would be allotted no reward for it in the other life, because the motive was not love of the Lord or the salvation of the human race. And on the other hand, that if someone should persecute Christianity and overthrow it, yet doing so from an innocent motive, thinking this was good, then such a one would be rewarded. The souls and spirits were unwilling to admit this because it is common with them, if someone has accomplished something on behalf of the doctrine of faith in their bodily life, that they want to be rewarded for it, whatever their motive. So the moral is, Pay attention to our own motivations in everything we do. And yes, make efforts to stop harmful actions in ourselves and others and to correct false dogmas and philosophies that justify violence. But make no assumptions about anyone's spiritual state or future in the spiritual realm because that information is known only to the Lord. Angels share the Lord's wish that every single person be stopped from doing harm, forgiven, retaught and guided in a heavenly direction. So that is the spiritually advanced wish to strive for. Preliminal asks, what is the spiritual significance to the color green? Do colors have meanings? If you hang out around Swedenborg's material long enough, you will learn that everything has meaning. That would include colors. And when I, when I got this question, I, like anybody else, would started to look up where does green appear in Swedenborg's works. And I found that a lot of the time, not exclusively, but a lot of the time, it's in reference to vegetation, green things, living plants. So I want to read a couple of quick excerpts about plants. Uh, Secrets of Heaven 996. Plants refer to earthly pleasures stemming from matters of the will or from heavenly kinds of feelings, while greenery refers to those stemming from matters of understanding or from spiritual things. So we have a connection here between calling plants greenery, the green emphasis on the green part, and this matters of understanding. And that is a thread that continues. We're going to look at Apocalypse Explained 507. This is evident from the signification of grass as being knowledge and also from the signification of green as being truth and living from truth because as green grass serves as food for animals so true knowledge serves for spiritual nourishment for man so there you get a sense of why is there a correspondence why does green mean that because on a spiritual level we are nourished by knowledge in the way that vegetation can nourish living organisms here but it goes beyond that the correspondence goes beyond that because why is that stuff green in the first place why are plants and grass green it's chlorophyll right and chlorophyll is part of the mechanism that allows plants to convert light into energy 
and light is a basic correspondence with truth. I mean, this is this light from the sun corresponds to God's truth. The green in plants is what allows them to convert that light into energy or bring it into their life and make it part of their life, which is this clear parallel to us finding, as Swedenborg even refers to it as the pleasure in understanding or in wisdom. This green can be uh, yeah, a signifier of the pleasure that we get in learning and understanding. But it's not always connected to plants. There are times when it's just mentioned, but it seems to have a similar meaning. For There's a story Swedenborg tells about an experience he had in his Journal of Spiritual Experiences, 3378. He says, Next, in a kind of open doorway, I saw a boy in a green garment, and I do not know what it symbolizes, perhaps such as belong to the same period or that of the ancient church. But then, he says, Presently, two handmaids in white, as to the head were seen, who symbolized those people's feelings, while the boy in green symbolized their knowledge and understanding. So he, now he seems to know what the boy symbolized. It, the, the Journal of Spiritual Experiences is his notes. It was never meant to be published, or he wasn't, he hadn't, so we forgive him for jumping around a bit if you're doing notes to self, but he seems to indicate there, I know what it means, it has to do with knowledge and understanding. So even there, the color green is associated with knowledge. Now, Green is a phenomenon that occurs a lot in the world, and it's a phenomenon that means different things to different people. You're not going to find anything as broad as that with just one correspondence. You know, there, here he's talking about it linking to green. I'm sure there are all kinds of, you just think about the different role that green can play psychologically for people uh, in the different things in the world. There's probably a lot of different meanings. Green can be a lot of different things in different situations. Swedenborg talks about things corresponding to different things based on their context. I've heard spiritual experiences where green was associated with healing and that sort of thing. So I'm giving you one explanation that Swedenborg gives. I'm sure there are many more, but there is something to the connection between green, knowledge, understanding, and the joy that we get from learning about life. This is a question from Easter. Without suffering, is it possible to be spiritually mature? So the short answer on that one is no, I'm afraid. Um, but there's a, it's a big story in Swedenborg. Swedenborg devotes a lot of real estate in his writings to this Latin word, tentatio. We get our word temptation from that word, as you can see. But temptation these days is more usually used to mean like a pull towards something that's not good for you or something that's not good for others. Like I'm going to be tempted to eat too much pie over the holidays or tempted to drink too much or tempted to too much gambling or that kind of thing. But that's not the way Swedenborg uses this word tentatio. When he uses that word, he's talking about a trial or a test of the spirit, uh, like a spiritual crisis. And in fact, one translator from more than a hundred years ago says that the real idea of that word tentatio is one of suffering. So there you go, Easter. We're talking about suffering in this word tentatio, which Swedenborg has a lot to say about. So one of the things that he says is that nobody can be regenerated without going through these trials. So regeneration is Swedenborg's term for spiritually mature. Um, he also defines temptations as uh, being nothing else than a combat between the evil spirits that are with a person and the angels that are with a person. 
And that's what we're feeling as distress, or sometimes they feel like a pang of conscience, or or they can be as bad as despair. Um, of course, in Swedenborg's uh, worldview, everything comes in threes. So less yeah, heavenly, spiritual, earthly, and we can have all those different kinds of temptations if our spirits are opened up to those levels. Um, they are caused uh, by the hellish forces with us either stirring up false ideas that we have or attacking something that we love. And again, that can be something on a very outer level, um, sickness, or uh, we lost our job, or it can be about something, our faith, our faith is tested, something that we really thought was true is being um, questioned or something that we love deeply is being threatened in some way. And though they're occasioned by the hellish forces around us, this is really part of the divine plan. And the Lord and his angels, says Swedenborg, is totally taking care of us during these times. Swedenborg talks about, as we're all growing up from the time that we're infants, the Lord is storing up in our spirits these experience of goodness and love and truth, and that these, he, he refers to them as the remnant or remains in the old translation, and that these stored up states of goodness are, are what sustain us through these trials. Also, he asserts that the Lord is not only not absent from us, but he is more present with us through these times of temptation and suffering than any other time. And we see that in the popular meme, you know, the story about the one set of footprints in the sand. Where were you, Lord? I was going through hell. Where were you? And there's only one footprint in the sand. And he says, that's when I was carrying you. So Swedenborg has that same philosophy. He's closer than ever when we're going through these worst parts of our lives. The purpose of these temptations is to loosen our hold on the worldly concerns to get rid of our false ideas, to raise our loves to something higher, to get us closer to the heavenly mindset. That's why they're here, because human beings on their own are quite distant from the state of heaven. And it's their purpose that, that helps raise us up, as Easter says, that gets us more spiritually mature. And we can see uh, comparisons in life. For instance, an athlete is never at the top of his game until he's been through hell, <laughs> workouts and blood, sweat and tears, a parent becomes a much more refined human being through the trials and tribulations of raising children. And the ultimate example is Jesus Christ, his suffering on the cross was the last required state before he could be fully transformed and glorified. So it's, it's, it's really, um, part of the human picture, um, and there's some philosophy that says um, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. I don't know quite how to hold that in, in these terms. Uh, so some kind of transformation is built into our, our uh, program. You know, we are going to have to go through some kind of spiritual transformation that involves pain and suffering. If we can hold in our minds that this is the Lord 
working with us to bring us to a better place, maybe we can mitigate the suffering part. All right, that's our show. Again, thank you so much for your questions and just for the fact that you care about this stuff in the first place means a lot to us. If you want to help this message spread, please consider liking and subscribing. That helps us get out on YouTube, makes it so that somebody may stumble upon this who didn't even know that they were asking these questions but had already been asking them in their heart or something like that. That would be much appreciated if you'd contribute there. And if you want to help all of our programming happen in the first place. We're a nonprofit. We run off donations. If you want to consider making a contribution, would make our engine go. Here's a little bit of our philosophy. We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com, and we produce this show and other content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up, though, is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider supporting this cause with a donation. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins. All right, again, thanks for hanging out. Join us next week. We'll be looking at how you feel the presence of angels. So if you're interested, tune in. We'll see you then. Mm -hmm.